The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Hello, Tom. Recently, Father Jenkins was the retreat master of both a women's and men's retreat here in the Cincinnati area. During those several days, the retreatants were kind enough to write out a stack of questions for Father Jenkins. However, time constraints at the retreat made it impossible for Father to, uh, to answer all of these questions. So in tonight's program, we will have a treatment of the questions from our Father Jenkins retreatants. And to start, Father, we have a question concerning absolution during Mass. Uh, the question reads, is it true that there is an absolution from venial sin at the first part of the Mass, or that holy water remits venial sin? Well, venial sin can be remitted by any act of charity, an act of love God, even imperfect love for God, can obtain uh, remission of venial sin. When one receives Holy Communion worthily, uh, one can remit uh, venial sin and the temporal punishment due to it. And um, so uh, performing an act of charity is uh, giving an alms. Um, yes, one could receive the... Uh, the the prayer the miserata indulgentiam at the uh, confitior and as they say it's an act of love and uh, one could receive remission of venial sin for that <clears throat> so uh, holy water is a sacramental again if it's something used in faith and, and out of love for god yeah the use of holy water remember when you use the holy water you make the sign of the cross and you're professing your faith in the existence of God, the blessed trinity, the crucifixion of the incarnate Son of God, all of that is professed in the in the sign of the cross. So uh, again, as an act of faith and motivated by love for God, yes, that all comes. So it can be, as it were, expiatory. Very good. All right, let's move on to the next one then. Dear Father, why in common speech do uh, do we not refer to the prophets, or we do not refer to the prophets of the Old Testament as saints? For example, Saint Abraham, Saint Moses, etc. Well, I think it is, if I'm not mistaken, it could be more common in the East to refer to them by the title of saint. Okay, but in the West, at least, uh, we have generally uh, reserved the title of saint. For someone, it has come to mean somebody who is canonized as being in heaven even now. Now we know the just souls who lived on earth before the sacrifice of our Lord did not enter heaven until he had made the sacrifice on the cross. <clears throat> in fact, uh, St. Peter tells us that after our Lord's death on the cross, his soul went to the limbo of the just where all of those just souls of the Old Testament were waiting for this great moment of the redemptive sacrifice being offered. And our Lord personally came to them and announced to them the gospel, that is, the, the news of the redemption. 
and uh, Arthur took them from that place. You know, he released them from that place. So we know that they are in heaven. I mean, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. We, Moses sold his soul, uh, saved his soul, and, and David, and, and Ruth, and Esther, and so on. <clears throat> but we don't customarily refer to them as saints because they are from the, from the Old Testament. Now, we do call, refer to St. Joseph, who died before the redemptive sacrifice of Christ, <clears throat> as St. Joseph. St. John the Baptist. And St. John the Baptist, ex exactly. And uh, so it's a matter of the like, common parlance. You know that even St. Paul, in writing the salutations to some of his epistles, <clears throat> uh, greeted the saints who are here and the saints who are there, right? Mm -hmm. And he was speaking in the broad sense of those who are in the state of God's grace and who have faith and hope and charity and uh, so on. <clears throat> and while they're still here on earth, you know. Uh, and he asks, uh, he assures them of prayers, and uh, he commends himself and others to their prayers, uh, which shows he recognized they have the power to invoke God on their behalf, on the behalf of others. So, uh, again, I have no idea where Protestants can possibly get their rejection of um of the Catholic terminology of saints and our concept of saints as those who have actually died in the grace of God and are now in heaven. <clears throat> the only way I can think they can justify their quote-unquote theology on this <clears throat> is their, 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 their complete uh, false idea of heaven. You know, Martin Luther said that in heaven we're still dung-covered or snow-covered dunghills, he said. So they don't even believe in the sanctity of the human soul, so maybe they think the saints in heaven are nothing but that, and there's no sense invoking them. Uh, Catholics understand the saints are those who died with faith, hope, and love for God, and are with him in heaven in a great act of love, and they're united with God in a supreme act of love. In fact, that they love him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, as Christ said. Mm -hmm. And that they're very much aware of us, and then... And that uh, they can pray for us, and we we can be, ask their prayers, as Saint Paul <clears throat> prayed for others, and ask them to pray for him as well. So, uh, with regard to Saint Paul using the word saints, he was referring to those who were here on earth, who are, you know, faithful to our God, faithful to our Lord, and in His grace. <laughs> and we apply to that that term. Um, especially in the, in the strictest sense to the human souls that are in heaven right now, have been saved and are united with God in the beatific vision. Even the souls who have been saved and are in purgatory, we do not refer to as saints. <clears throat> They're not canonized. <clears throat> in the earliest days of the church, there was not a canonization process as we've known it. Um, because... Um, uh, with, the, with the church with persecution and so on. I mean, there was a development uh, in the church, you know, of our procedures and ceremonies and, and structures of government and so on uh, that took time, but that's perfectly understandable. Couldn't have been otherwise. Um, but um, there were those who were canonized by the church in the sense that almost by popular recognition and uh, of their sanctity, 
they came to the notice of church authorities, uh, and their their invocation and their veneration was approved mm -hmm. by church authorities, and uh, so it became, in a sense, quote unquote, canonized <clears throat> before there was a canonization process. Um, as far as um, you know, we talk about referring to saints as human souls who in the, lived in the state of grace, died in the state of grace, or in God's beatific vision now, but we also refer to Saint Michael the Archangel, Saint Gabriel the Archangel, Saint Raphael the Archangel, and so on. So these are not human, they're, they're angelic, but they're spirits that are blessed, and they are in the glory of God. So you see, the, the use of the word saints has a, has a strict sense, in, in, the, in the broad sense, and the way it has been used in the church, actually, customarily, I mean, here custom plays a big role. Why, in the West, we usually don't refer to the holy souls of the Old Testament as being saints, but those who are <clears throat> related to our Lord in the New, uh, in the New Testament, mentioned in the New Testament, because they were part of our Lord's own lifetime. Part of our Lord's own life, St. Joseph and St. John the Baptist, are referred to as saints, although they died before Calvary, took place. And even angels are referred to as saints. <clears throat> so, um, generally speaking, uh, we, can, we can speak as St. Paul did. We could consider that any, any of the souls that are in the state of God's grace are holy souls. Um, um, in the in the broad sense of the term, right? <clears throat> the souls on earth, as St. Paul spoke of them, were in the state of grace. Uh, the souls in purgatory who are all in the state of God's grace, and they've all been pronounced saved, but they do not have perfect love for God yet. And they still have to expiate you know, temporal punishment due to their sins here. And the souls in heaven. <clears throat> but uh, even there, uh, in the strict sense of the word, if the term is applied to those who are in heaven right now with God in the Beatific vision. Fair enough. <clears throat> you, you mentioned angels. We've got a couple questions about angels here. Um, this one reads, Were all fallen angels sent to hell because of the sin of pride, or did each one of them sin in a particular way? With, angelic, uh, with the angelic spirits, it was pride. <clears throat> it was pride. Uh, they don't have the passions as we know them. They don't have the appetites as we know them. Uh, these are things that we share with animals. The irascible appetite, the confessible appetites, and so on. But actually, they did have pride. <coughs> the pride of life. Uh, their very existence. And actually, they would be more prone to it than you and I, in a sense, because uh, um, they have greater, by nature, greater powers than we, greater perfection than we. And um, so, you know, this could also produce greater temptation toward pride in thinking that they were independent of God. They could stand alone. They could be their own heaven, you know, in a sense. Uh, be self-sufficient and glory in themselves. Um, in fact, in the Gospel, our Lord talked about those who, who gloried in themselves. I think that's the expression that he used. You know? And with the angels, that was the case. The, the angels that fell, they decided to uh, glory in themselves. They didn't want to uh, humble themselves before God. 
and to acknowledge that their glory really was not only subordinate to his own, it was subject to his own, and really was necessarily dependent on God's own glory. And glorifying him, that is their own glorification, really. <clears throat> so um, they diverted, as it were, stealing from God, almost, uh, the glory that they really owed to him, and they tried to appropriate it unto themselves. So it really was a set of pride. Yeah, yeah. St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas has a great treatment of that question mm. in his, in his yeah, Summa. Sure. Uh, that would be a great great place to check for information there. Yeah. This uh, The other question concerning angels is, to what choir of angels did Lucifer belong? Was he the highest of all angels created by God? Well, speaking of St. Thomas, about the, the angels and the mm-hmm. fallen angels, now he does raise that question. And St. Thomas... Um, says there are those who think that Lucifer was the greatest of the angels, uh, absolutely speaking, which would have put him in the highest of the choirs of the angels, the seraphim, and he would have been like the greatest of the seraphs, perhaps. Uh, Others, uh, St. Thomas says, believe he was an archangel, Mm -hmm. which would be the second order from the lowest, or the angels, and the archangels, the difference, the angels are those, the lowest orders of these bodily spirits. God uses for interaction with us here on earth. He assigns them as guardian angels to human beings. And uh, on earth also, I mean, even nations have, have guardian angels, as we as we see from Fatima. Where before Our Lady appeared to the children, we see the angel appearing to them and telling them that he is the guardian angel of Portugal. So we see a kind of uh, hierarchy of angels here on earth assigned to watch over mankind. And, uh, you know, there are theologians who say that this was Lucifer's, the light carrier's assignment to be over the angels that interacted with mankind and in a sense be at the service of mankind to bring them to the glory of God. And he found this to be very demeaning to him because he was so far superior to you, to me, to any human being that he found it to be almost insulting to him. That's his pride, though. And uh, he actually felt sorry for himself. uh, And he still does to this very day as though he was not appreciated, you know, being required to do something that was so degrading to him. And this was the, the reason for his downfall. And therefore, that uh, as the head of the archangels, he was able to influence so many of the angels below him. He couldn't influence the angels above him, because he had no power over them. But uh, as St. Thomas says, the angels enlighten the, those that are below them in the order of perfection. And he was actually able to sweep a third of the other archangels and angels into his pride. And uh, they were cast out, uh, and uh, hell was created for them. They had nowhere else to go. Um, So, um, there, uh, Saint Thomas seems to seems to favor the idea. I'd have to go back and check, but I I thought he uh, uh, one time I I thought he was favoring the idea that Lucifer was actually the highest of the archangels. Now I'm beginning to think that maybe. He favored the idea that he was the greatest of the angels, but I, I think the if he if, if so, the reason that he gave was that 
the highest of the angels would have the greatest temptation to pride and self-sufficiency. Um, but uh, on the other hand, he made an argument that uh, uh, that the highest of the archangels themselves would have also been um, uh, more vulnerable or susceptible to fall. So when you read St. Thomas's writing on the subject, you get the understanding that he's giving the theology of it. I don't think he's entirely uh, con sure himself, you know, right. convinced as I would say, I'm, I'm convinced that this is the case and the other is not the case. Interesting to read his reasoning behind it, though. I mean, I, I think for my petty intellect, I, I think that uh, there's a very strong argument for uh, Lucifer, the light carrier, being the highest of the archangels, yeah. which would explain his name, that he was meant to enlighten here mankind, mankind about was to know about God, right? And then here he gets to be kind of an angelic mentor of mankind. And um, also the fact that St. Michael, another archangel, was able to confront him and to overcome him. And expel him from heaven. I think that's another indication in favor of him having been the greatest of the archangels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I believe that uh, that St. Thomas Aquinas uh, speculates that hell could be at the center of the earth, and mm. not fitting would that be that Satan, who, who re Lucifer, who, re who refused mm. to serve mankind, is now. But that is exactly where he should <laughs> be. Present, that's yeah. exactly where he should be. And and also condemned souls too, who invested invested their lives entirely into the things of the earth. Yeah. That this is what they get. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. How well, pathetic. Father, let's let's move on from the fall of the angels to the Garden of Eden. There's a question here that reads. And the Garden of Eden was the tree of knowledge and good and evil, the same as the tree of life. No, no, they were not the same. Now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was something that they were banned from. <clears throat> they were banned from uh, eating the fruit of that tree, right? Mm -hmm. uh, remember, Adam and Eve did not know evil. They only knew good. Yeah. There was no evil in, that, in, in this God's creation at that time. And that was one of the enticements that Lucifer used for Eve, the curiosity to know good and evil. And, uh, and also avail herself of the choice between them. I mean, hey, choice, right? Choice, right? It's all about choice. And uh, um, so um, she fell, and uh, then God said, let us now, another interesting I thought, you know, God, when he created, let us make man like unto us ourselves. You know? Now, God speaks within himself as a plurality of persons. You know? In the Old Testament, the first book of the Bible, first chapters of the first book of the Bible. And then after Adam and Eve fell, let us see whether man will take of the tree of life and live forever, you know. And that tree of life uh, really was, well, again, uh, there is an interesting theology about this tree of life, which some speculate actually grew in the garden, and from the generations of tree following that, the, the cross was made. Some speculate that. There's a long, uh, <clears throat> long history of legends, and you know, I don't know if they rise to the level of traditions, uh, because traditions are not just legends; they have a, they have a guarantees of truth there. 
<clears throat> but there are all kinds of 11 legendary formulas and stories <clears throat> about um, um, Adam being buried with the three seeds of the tree of life in his mouth and he was buried where the cross stood right and as though the uh, the cross itself was hewn from the wood from trees that descended from the tree of life you know it's a curious, yeah. you know, it's an interesting study, especially in the East. There's a, there's a tremendous uh, line of, of a storyline that comes down. But the tree of life was not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the eating of that fruit would give death. The tree of life, eating of the fruit of the tree of life would give life. And of course, when the angel appears to Our Lady and says, Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, uh, our Lord referred to as the fruit of the womb. I mean, uh, again, there's, a, there's a definitely a parallel here <clears throat> between the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the, the, fruit, the fruit of the tree of life and our Lord crucified. And those who eat of him, as our Lord said, he who eats of my flesh and drinks my blood has life in him. Uh, he and he alone can give life that's what he told the people a year before the crucifixion your father is in the desert, ate manna and they all died but I have a bread that is a living bread that has come down from heaven, if you eat of this you will never die <clears throat> he's referring to the life of the soul, the life of grace <clears throat> that comes from being in communion with Christ, literally being in communion with Christ mm -hmm. that is the tree of life that's why we regard the cross as the tree of life, the cross of Christ as the tree of life. Right. And uh, recently, Father, I thought it was interesting uh, in, in, uh, in some art presentation, uh, I forget the exact, uh, the exact cathedral, but some, some cathedral, there was a, a, a famous stained glass window, um, I forget the exact title, the, the Root of Jesse, it may have been. Uh, something like that, but but they show the uh, the Christ crucified, and they did the the cross in green mm -hmm. to show mm -hmm. that it's still alive, that, that mm -hmm. life comes from this. Mm -hmm. I thought that was, that was yes, you've seen that depiction to show exactly that, mm -hmm. and it's uh, very powerful. Yeah. A lot, uh, the imagery has a lot of uh, a lot of faith and theological uh, uh, meditation behind it. You know, Definitely. meditation based upon theology, based on faith. Definitely. Well, Father, we've got a couple questions about the assumption here. Um, one is, where did it take place? And also, how old was Mary when she died? Uh, where did the assumption take place? Well, <clears throat> traditions, uh, some speak in favor of Ephesus and some speak in favor of Jerusalem. Our Blessed Mother lived at Ephesus with St. John, the Apostle. <clears throat> but there is a very strong tradition in the Church that she had returned to Jerusalem and it was in Jerusalem that she died, and this, the apostles were summoned there when it was clear that she was dying. And uh, how many of the apostle, apostles were present, we don't know. Uh, perhaps all surviving apostles actually were there, we don't know. But again, uh, we have the tradition that has come down to us, um, and now defined of, of the assumption of Our Lady's body into heaven, which is of course, connected with this whole scenario of her death. Uh, theologically, it has never been pronounced certain that she did die. 
but I, I believe it is theologically very sound teaching Catholic with the Catholic Church and I think the sentencia Cetsior, if not even more so is that she did choose death to be like her son in all things and so she she did not want to be the only the only soul never to have undergone death the separation from the body Adam and Eve died all of the patriarchs died uh, our Lord himself her divine son underwent death Saint Joseph and, and so on so um, she in all your humility uh, given the choice chose to undergo the separation of, of body and soul to go that that way in order to follow her son in every every step of the way um, <clears throat> I can imagine her death being a very joyful one because she'd waited so so longingly for that moment that she would be free to go to her son and to be united with him in the beatific vision, um, to be reunited with him uh, in that most special way. And um, so I can imagine her, her the, the expression on her face to be absolutely radiant <clears throat> when her body did, uh, you know, separate from her soul, soul separate from the body. <clears throat> the understanding is that her soul did go to heaven to our Lord, her son, immediately, where she was received with great joy. And uh, not only the joy of our Lord, but the joy of all the angels and all the, the saints who had preceded her in heaven, including St. Joseph <clears throat> and St. John the Baptist. But <clears throat> that her body was remained here and was buried in a tomb for three days, and on the third day, it was found very much as the tomb of our Lord was found. <clears throat> that her body, in fact, had been taken by the angels uh, to heaven and reunited with her soul there. And um, that, uh, you know, one could argue, though, that her soul was allowed to come, like our Lord himself, come back and reunite with the, the body in the tomb. One can argue that, but I think the general the tradition says <clears throat> that her soul, body was taken and her soul was united there with heaven, with God, uh, so that her holy soul, her united to this incorrupt body that had never been an instrument of sin and therefore did not need to be need, not need to die, did not need to corrupt, did not need to be recreated. <clears throat> Um, because it had never offended God. And so her glorified soul could be united in her, to her body, which would be glorified, and uh, is in heaven right now mm -hmm. with uh, the Blessed Trinity and uh, actually exalted above the angels even, who recognize in her the power of God to take a soul that is so, so humble <clears throat> and to raise it so high. Uh, that even they, even they are filled with wonder at what God has done, as what God has done for her. Well, Father, here are some uh, some deeper. Oh, by the way, there was a question about when. Yeah. <coughs> there, how, there is how, how old was she? Well, there is speculation that Our Lady was about mid-teens when she received the angel and therefore received uh, the Son of God mm -hmm. in her womb, and there are. <coughs> The, 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 there's a range of speculation uh, between three years after her, a, after the son of our, the death of our Lord on the cross, to as much as 15 years 
after the death of our Lord on the cross. <clears throat> if Our Lady was, say, 15 when she conceived the child Jesus, which would not have been unusual for a uh, girl at that time, married to a man who might have been uh, you know, 30 years old, who was well-established and could make a home and, and, and provide for a wife and children. Um, that um, if this, uh, then our Lord died at the age of 33, okay, you add that to 15, so our, Lord, our Lady would have been 48 years old when our Lord died on the cross, and uh, would have been in her 50s or so, perhaps approaching 60, 60 or so when she would have died, okay. undergone that, assuming that she did, and uh, was assumed into heaven. Okay. Well, we've got some, some deeper theological questions here uh, mm. pertaining to the Assumption. And I'll just, just read the card here. It says, Can the Assumption of Our Lady be considered her resurrection of the body accomplished in her before that of the rest of humanity, so that God's Holy One might not see corruption? Her disappearance from her tomb would then be a sign of her spiritual risen body, like that of her son, which can come and go as she pleases. If not, is her body in heaven the same unglorified she had during life? And will she participate in the resurrection on Judgment Day with everyone else? I'll try to remember all those questions. Four of them there. <laughs> Last count. Um, it could be considered a matter of uh, an early resurrection for Our Lady, but for the fact that her body did not disintegrate into dust and have to be recreated <clears throat> into a body that uh, reflected the sin, the perfection of a sinless body. You and I, all of us, will have to undergo that. Everybody listening to us and, and watching us right now will all have to undergo that. Um, but Our Lady did not have to undergo that. So with that distinction between her resurrection and ours, um, yes, and one could consider that to be her early resurrection from, uh, uh, from the dead. Um, as the person says, so that the body would not be corrupt, and not be corrupted. But her body, sinless as it was, would not have corrupt. I mean, even if even if her body was here on earth, it would not be. It would, I'm sure it would still not be corrupted mm -hmm. because of her sinlessness. You know. But the question is, when her glorified soul united with her body, then her body would have been would have shared in the glorification of the soul, and her body would have been very much like the body of Christ at His resurrection. It would have had, you know, uh, agility and all the, the other characteristics of a glorified body. And yes, it could pass through <clears throat> the, the rock of a tomb. You know? um, Our Lady's, you know, there was no stone on the tomb of Our Lady that rolled back at the agency of an angel. And Our Lady didn't have to <clears throat> blind and, and, and strike guards, you know, outside her tomb, and so that they fell as dead men. Our Lady didn't have to do that, of course. Um, so the fact that her body and soul um, could have united in that tomb, and then she could have um, left the tomb that way, that her body could have easily passed through whatever material was there, yes. But again, this presupposes the idea of her soul coming here on earth, and being reunited with her body in the tomb and the body rising there, which is thoroughly possible, right? Um, 
with regard to um, whether Mary will participate in the general resurrection, no, not as, not as you and I will. Um, will Our Lady stand, quote-unquote, at the general judgment? You know? Well, remember, insofar as the general judgment uh, is a matter of, um, of glorifying those who are good and condemning those who are evil, right? Or manifesting, manifesting the righteousness of some and the uh, unrighteousness of others, Mary certainly will be there. She certainly will be there at, at hand. Uh, Michelangelo represents her in the Sistine Chapel as being at the right hand of our Lord during the judgment, as you know. <clears throat> and she has a very particular interest in the salvation of our souls. Uh, she, who gave her own son as the price of our salvation and stood under the cross and received his body in her arms, uh, under the cross, uh, she manifestly has a very strong part in the redemption and therefore uh, interest in the salvation of souls. But, I mean, she too will be glorified then, just as all the saints will be glorified then. Mm -hmm. And um, then everyone, the, the just and the unjust, the saved and the damned, will have to acknowledge her, her greatness. You know, all generations will have to proclaim her blessed. You know, even the, the souls on their way to hell will be horrified to, to know that, but they will know it. Uh, they won't be able to deny it either. So Our Lady will be there, and she will take part in it, but her role, her place there will be as the greatest of all saints, as, the, as, as it were, the saint of saints. You know. Uh, so she will have place there, but it won't be the same place as the rest of us. And, uh, but the body that is in heaven now is glorified. Yeah, it is the same body with which she died, but it's Condition has changed. Now it is glorified. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, it would have to be to enter heaven. Speaking of the greatness of Mary, would you please explain how the different parts of the Hail Mary prayer were put together and approved by the church? Um, you know, I, I don't know that I recall exactly when the latter part of the Hail Mary uh, was added. And the latter part of the Hail Mary was added. It might have been added at first by popular, uh, just, just, People praying. You know? mm -hmm. um, we know that when people were copying sacred scripture, they would sometimes add glosses to the margins, um, statements of piety. And these weren't necessarily commentators on sacred scripture, although some commentators might have, you know, also uh, had actual parchment copies of scriptures and uh, commented by writing glosses and reflections of their meditations and so on <clears throat> that were not really part of the inspired Word of God, but were the reaction of a devout soul, mm -hmm. and perhaps moved by grace, not be inspired in a sense, but uh, be, to be inspired by an act of devotion and to comment. So, if that can happen with, with in writing the sacred scriptures, certainly in one using the words of sacred scripture, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. One could easily be inspired by grace from God to <clears throat> simply voice his sentiments and thoughts about that, thy womb, Jesus, 
And to pray and say, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Well, in any case, in the course of the time, at some point in the Church's history, this became a common acclamation. And, um, you know, there are various prayers that have been written by various saints. We have prayers of St. Thomas Aquinas, and prayers penned by St. Ignatius Loyola, and so on. They're very useful prayers because they express the faith so clearly, but they also express the love for God so powerfully. And this might be an example of a, a prayer that was at some time appended by a pope, a saint, and became generally accepted throughout the church. Um, I, I'm going to have to go and look that up, you know, again, to see what uh, what the historians uh, uh, say about that. <clears throat> but the fact is, it is something that the church has truly canonized. Um, and it is thoroughly Catholic um, to... Um, Pray the words of sacred scripture. I mean, these are the words of God the Father. Uh, the angel would not have made something up of his own. He was there as a messenger from God. The words that he was pronouncing were the words by, with, by which the Holy Ghost inspired him to greet Mary. And as I mentioned during the retreat, you notice that the sacred scripture does not say that Mary was troubled by the sight of the angel but that she was troubled by his greeting as to what manner of greeting this might be. The implication is that Mary was not troubled by the sight of an angel because she might have been accustomed to the sight of the angel. But this particular greeting was new to her, and it posed a bit of a problem because she had, in fact, offered her virginity to God as a sacrifice in in his honor and um, that she would be totally dedicated to his service as a handmaid. And now she was being told that there would be fruit of her womb. In other words, she was going to have a child. And uh, he would be actually the son of God, as the angel himself uh, spoke to her. That God would overshadow her, but by his power that this child would be conceived. And we would know him as the son of God. So, uh, that was the greeting that made Mary ask, you know. And she asked, how shall this be done? Not doubting that it could be. But her question was, what what am I to do? You know, that was always her concern. Like Lucy at Fatima, I mentioned. Whenever Our Lady appeared, her first words were always the same. What do you want of me? What do you want of me? That's, what am I to do? But this is, these are the words of the handmaid of the Lord. And so our, our Lady responded exactly that way. And notice that even in accepting this proposal, as it were, uh, even in becoming the mother of God, her words were simply, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Even becoming the mother of, our, of God, she in her own mind was, was even... Even that was simply an expression of her being his servant and doing his will completely and absolutely... Um, in complete subjection to his will. Mm-hmm. So that is the absolute humility and lowliness of Mary that even the, the angels themselves found quite wonderful, you know, um, and which the devil finds terrifying. You know? So um, 
it was kind of normal, natural, inevitable that invoking these words of the of the of God the Father to Our Lady and mem- commemorating her response that the the Christian soul would would burst into a, a request to Mary, pray for pray for me, pray for us mm-hmm. now in the hour of our death. Uh, and, and professing her to be the mother of God, even as the angel said. So um, that is the prayer, the Hail Mary, the first part of which is, are the words that God the Father sent, delivered to Mary through an angel, and the second part of which is our response. Mm-hmm. Well, that'll be tough to follow up on, Father, but we've got a question about purgatory here. Mm-hmm. Specifically, when was purgatory created? Was it after the fall of Satan or after the fall of Adam and Eve? Uh, well, you know, hell was created with the fall of the angels. <clears throat> and we could say that uh, purgatory was created uh, after the fall of the... Um, the fall of man. Okay. Uh, there was no purgatory for angels. Mm-hmm. Uh, only human souls could uh, be converted and live. <clears throat> but this also posed the particular problem of their sinfulness. Their conversion required repentance. Their repentance presupposed sin, right? And so sin requires some retribution because of the damage that sin does. <coughs> so even though human soul, souls of sinners, uh, which all mankind became with the sin of Adam, you know, whoever would descend from him, but for the great privilege of Our Lady and the soul of our Lord himself, um, <coughs> all others would be subject to some kind of <coughs> punishment for sins of their lives. <coughs> even though they would die in God's grace. And so purgatory was created for them. Okay. But, uh, Father, I believe that St. Thomas Aquinas, again in his Summa, I believe that he says that the fires of, of purgatory are the same as, well, not, not the same, but, but they are essentially the, the fires of hell. So would this not indicate that purgatory well, the, is a part the of The fires of purgatory, is, but it's not the same place. Okay. <clears throat> There's no escape from what we know as the hell of the damned, right? <clears throat> There's no, and the the difference in occupants, you know, yeah. uh, are like night and day, right? <clears throat> uh, so, I mean, purgatory is in a sense like the antechamber to heaven, uh, in a sense, because all of those souls are in the state of God's grace. They all love Him, and their love for Him is being purified sure. and perfected. They all have something no soul in hell has, and that is hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they have a hope that goes beyond your hope and mine. They know they're saved. <clears throat> and uh, they, um, they're they just looking for that moment when they have uh, run their course, when their temporal punishment is taken, is, uh, you know, expunged, expunged, as it were, and paid for. <clears throat> and um, their love for God is perfect. So it doesn't mean that it's a different kind of purgatory, a different kind of fire necessarily. Um, but there's another, there's a different suffering in hell that is not in purgatory. You have the pain of sense, and you have the pain of loss. 
that is the greatest of the sufferings of hell. Uh, the pain of absolute hopelessness and purposelessness. And that you had one purpose in existence and you completely blew it <laughs> once and forever. And it's your own fault, you know. <clears throat> and you, you can't escape that. Um, there's the pain of sense in purgatory, but there's not the pain of loss. <clears throat> and quite the contrary, I mean, there's actually a joy I mean, with the suffering there. And even therefore, the pain of sense is different, <clears throat> because if you go <clears throat> and you were to uh, descend with uh, <clears throat> Dante's Virgil into the depths of Infernum, right? you would hear the what you would see would be the horrors of horribly twisted and deformed um, soul uh, spirits you know and uh, it would be nightmares you know um, and you would hear the sounds of absolute despair you know the howls of despair uh, you would smell the stench, you know. You wouldn't have those in purgatory. You wouldn't see the sights of damned, the damned souls. <clears throat> um, uh, grotesquely twisted, you know, in, in not only in pain, but in despair. You wouldn't hear their cries, uh, their, you know, the spiritual cries of just horror and, and hatred, you know. I guess that's the one thing, you know, in, in hell you, you would experience just hatred, just hatred. The whole place is filled with hatred, <clears throat> but purgatory not so. There's no hatred there, no hatred whatsoever. So it's a very different place. Well, Father, I think we have time for just one, one more question here. Uh, this one reads, because our Lord says, wherever two or three are gathered together, there I am. I often wonder when I pray alone, as is usually the case, if he is there with me. Please explain why our Lord specifies two or three and not one or two. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know. There are commentaries about this. I mean, the, the fathers of the church have written on these subjects, and that's a very good thing. Um, our Lord is there, certainly, with the one soul in the state of grace who's praying. There's no doubt about it. Our Lord is not saying that he's not with uh, a single soul who is in the state of his grace. What does our Lord say? Uh, our Lord says that <clears throat> one who receives him, right? The, the one who receives him worthily in communion, our Lord says he comes with the Father and the Holy Ghost and abides within the soul of that individual. That's how intimately he is present with the soul of an individual who is united to him by, by sanctifying grace and loves him. Uh, you might say, well, how can, how, how therefore could our Lord <clears throat> be any more present <clears throat> when two or three are united? And, um, <clears throat> I don't know, just to venture, uh, you know, some musings on the subject, it's a good question, but I haven't really thought about it quite like that. But uh, <clears throat> where there are two or three united together in a common love for our Lord, they have a common faith, a common hope, and a common love for our Lord. Uh, there, is, there is something that resembles his, his church in a particular way. <clears throat> because the church is a congregation, and congregation comes from a flocking together. So when you have a multiplicity of souls, 
I mean, that's what you have to have, you know, you, to have a flock or a congregation. You have to have a multiplicity of souls <clears throat> united. And so perhaps our Lord sees there in this uh, multiple of devoted souls uh, something that is of a, a um, has a character of the church that is <clears throat> something super added to the idea of just an individual soul. Uh, devoted to him. And therefore our Lord says he is with them in that in a, in a special way, maybe in a, in a somewhat unique way. <clears throat> Not only in terms of the, the love of each soul for him, <clears throat> but the love of each soul for each other too. <clears throat> and you can see that, <clears throat> I mean, you don't technically have charity for yourself, although the, the Rule is love your neighbor as yourself, okay? But the fathers of the church, you know, they talk about strictly speaking, charity is not <clears throat> what we commonly refer to as the bond that we have with our, ourselves, but the bond of perfection that unites us as individuals. You know, St. Paul talks of this, the bond of perfection. <clears throat> and so looking at it that way, uh, and looking at the two great commandments, that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. And then our Lord at the Last Supper says, love your neighbor as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. <clears throat> you see, our Lord puts a premium on that love too. That love between those who love him is extremely important to him, so that he will say, you know, if you bring your gift to the altar to offer for me, but you f realize that your brother has something against you because you're guilty of some injustice or some lack of charity, leave your gift there. It's not acceptable to me. I don't want your gift. As long as you're somehow there, the love between you and your brother has been violated, you take care of that first, and then you come and your gift will be acceptable. And our Lord tells the parable about the the uh, unjust, or the 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 man who owes the ten thousand talents, right? And the king forgives him because he asks. But then the steward goes out and starts choking another steward who owes him, you know, a pittance, and will not forgive him. And you know, the, you know the parable, right? The man is brought back to the king, reported to the king, and the king calls him in and says, "Now, you know, I forgave you this enormous debt because you asked me, and you wouldn't even forgive your fellow servant a small debt like that." And our Lord delivered him to the torturers until all the debt was paid. And what this tells you is how how important it is to Almighty God <clears throat> that we were right with each other, that we treat each other with justice and charity, and if we don't then nothing we have to offer him is acceptable to him. So knowing that God puts a premium on that, the, the justice and charity that we show to each other, you know, you can, you can kind of understand that it brings a dimension of the love we have for our Lord, the connection we have for each other in uniting in faith, open charity among ourselves in our common love for God. This is, again, uh, expressed by the Church in what she tells us about prayer, that each one of us individually must go to God in prayer as an individual, but also God wills that we come in prayer to Him as a society, as associated with each other, and as a society on all levels. I mean, two or three 
families, right? Uh, nations, uh, world, the world, the whole society of the world. You know, should be acknowledging God and, and uh, uh, adoring Him uh, as its sovereign Lord. And uh, this is actually going to ultimately have to be the, the work of the Immaculate Heart of Our Lady. That will be the triumph of her Immaculate Heart, you know, uh, to bring that about. So anyway, I, I hope that, you know, gives some sense of the idea why when two or three are gathered together, that brings a dimension of charity that is not there solely with the individual praying, as great as that is, as beautiful it is, as present as our Lord is there, in the, each soul instead of grace, the union in prayer uh, does actually add something. <clears throat> you might even see that in heaven in a way, if I can go a little further with that, that God considers the union of the angels and the saints in heaven together with him to be accidentally greater glory than he even has unto himself. And absolutely speaking, you can't add to the glory of God. <clears throat> but accidentally, <clears throat> the fact that God has shared this glory and that it is reflected in us and that we can enjoy it with him, accidentally, it actually, it actually adds, adds something, however accidental it may be to the glory of God, that he wants this, that this is important to him. Mm-hmm. So where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am. Mm-hmm. And Father, this question seems to be a bit concerned about praying, praying alone, praying by themselves, but it seems to me that uh, the individual never really has to pray by themselves in the sense mm-hmm. that when we say our morning prayers each morning, we say, "Oh Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary." Uh, when we when we say the the prayer of Saint Gertrude, we say, "Eternal Father, I offer thee the most precious blood of thy divine Son Jesus, in union with the masses said throughout the world today." Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that the individual never really has to well, pray. Tom, I mean, you himself. just expressed the mystery of the communion of saints. <laughs> so that when we do pray, I mean, we're not praying alone. Right. We're always praying in union with the saints in heaven. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're play, praying in union with the church right. here on earth. So, in a sense, whenever we do pray, two or three are gathered together. But, exactly. you know, <laughs> far beyond that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when the priests pray, when someone is ordained as a member of the clergy, he represents, uh, insofar to the extent that he is ordained, I mean, he goes through the the. the the levels of ordination to ultimately the priesthood and um, then the question is uh, he, he represents the church so a priest like a religious inquire in church singing the divine office with a community of Dominican friars or Benedictine monks they represent the church. But even if if one priest alone is praying the bravery, he is praying the public prayer of the church. And he represents the entire church in offering that prayer, personally, because of the character of the priesthood. But when a layman prays the rosary, he is actually praying something that the church has said is like the layman's psalter, and uh, now that's not obviously that he's praying as an ordained minister of the church and uh, 
But the prayer that he's praying has been so endorsed by the church, church as an extraordinarily powerful and treasured devotion that uh, in praying the rosary, the individual, the individual Christian is actually uniting himself with the Immaculate Heart of Mary because he's doing what our Lady did on earth. He's pondering the mysteries of the life, death, resurrection, and glorification of our Lord. And uh, that's what Scripture says. That's what Our Lady did. She kept all these things in her heart, pondering over them within her heart. So when we pray the rosary, and I mean truly pray the rosary, and, um, and meditate upon the mysteries, we are doing what Our Lady did. We're uniting our hearts with her Immaculate Heart. And that's about as close as you can get for a layman, certainly. Uh, to offer the public prayer of the church, which is basically praying the life of Christ mm. um, from the gospel and, uh, and expressing the thoughts of Our Lady. Remember what uh, Simeon said, right, at the, present at, the, uh, at the presentation, that a sword will pierce your heart that, the heart, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed, is that the thoughts of all of our hearts are contained within hers. And what is contained in her as she was pondering over the mysteries of the life, death, resurrection, glorification of her son. Those are the thoughts that are there. When we pray the rosary, those are our thoughts too. So one could not actually unite one's own heart any more intimately with the heart of Mary than by faith and hope and charity, and charity that inspires the actual praying of the, the mysteries of the rosary, the mysteries of the life of Christ, and our Lady's life with him. Uh, then by praying the rosary. Mm -hmm. Again, as you say, we don't. We never pray alone. Right, right. Well, Father, we've answered about half of the questions tonight, but we've covered a lot of, I think, beautiful truths in this program from uh, from our Blessed Mother and her Assumption and the Hail Mary and, and the angels and uh, the rosary and all of this. So I think uh, that that was a good good start on these, and we've got about half of them left. So perhaps. Well, so. I guess we have to make an arrangement to look at the rest of them too. We can do that, yeah, okay. certainly. But thanks for being here tonight. Oh, uh, actually, and, Tom, thank you. No God bless you. And blessed uh, Independence Day to you as well. Well, thank you, blessed Independence Day <laughs> yeah. to you too. Yeah. Uh, uh, we have a lot to be thankful for. Sure. Almighty well, God, but uh, we always have to remind ourselves that independence. Does not mean independence from him. <laughs> That's, right. That's what the liberals yeah. would like to pretend. But uh, you know, all of our independence depends upon our dependence on him. Sure, definitely. Well, thank you to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.